Well, there you have another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. The guest on today's episode, I've been trying to get him for a while. He's, you know, it's no joke. He, he's an airline pilot. He's literally flying everywhere, city here, city there. And we've been playing, uh, I think, tag for several months now. But this is Lieutenant Colonel, Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel Joe Crane, 24-year veteran was a Super Cobra attack helicopter pilot with two combat missions under his belt. He has a podcast of his own. I was very honored and privileged to have him here today. And we talked a lot about a lot of great things, and he's got some incredible wisdom for the listeners out there. And and I thank you for listening to today's episode of Straight Outta Combat Radio. Your steely-eyed killer shadow in the night. You were born to fight. You gotta light them up. My name is John Krotek, and I want to welcome you to Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. We're here to honor the wisdom of America's most valuable asset for combat veterans. We're authentic, we're empowering, we're American. Save us all before they burn it down. Our guest on this episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, Audio Medicine by Green Zone Hero, has taken me a while to get him here. This Marine officer, actually, he's a jet setter in the real sense of the term. He is an um, airline pilot these days. But Lieutenant Colonel Joe Crane retired from the Marine Corps in 2013 after serving 24 years of service to the United States of America. He was an he was an AH one W one whiskey Super Cobra attack helicopter pilot, and he completed two combat missions to Iraq. And I'm just we're glad he's back, and I'm sure his family is too. And like I said, Joe is now an airline pilot. He is also the host of his own podcast show every Monday called Veteran on the Move Podcast: Your Pathfinder to Freedom. And Joe's mission is integral. Uh, to the fabric of podcasting world, but also to our society as a whole. He wants to provide knowledge and inspiration to veterans aspiring to transition into the exciting world of entrepreneurship. And uh, yes, it is exciting. And I'm very humbled and very honored to have Lieutenant Colonel and airline pilot Joe Crane with us today on Straight Out of Combat. Hey, Joe. Thanks, John. Wow. What a great introduction. I appreciate it. Hope I can live up to all that. Oh, uh, you, you got this, sir. I th- you know, anybody that's sitting, that has sat in the cockpit of, an, of a Cobra attack helicopter, I think, can handle this interview. I, I'm, <laughs> you, you got this. But uh, anyhow, thank you for being on the show. And I wasn't joking for all, everybody listening. You know, it's taken Joe's busy, and, and, and I'm glad we're able to do this. But, you know, let's just jump into it. Joe, tell us about the Crane household growing up. We well, you know, John, I have to say, I've completed 277 interviews on the Veteran on the Move podcast, and it's much easier being the guy doing the interviewing than it is being the guy getting interviewed. So I don't haven't been interviewed that many times myself, so I'm a little on edge today. Well, I, I can appreciate that. I, I get it, you know, and it's and I and you're right. You know, it's it's an interesting world. I know you and I have talked offline before about podcasts, but, you know, telling these stories is is a way for us to, you know, give a slice of our own lives, but to let people know 
how important their stories are. And and I'm not just blowing smoke, Joe. I, I, I am truly humbled to have you here. And your story is important. I've never interviewed an attack Cobra helicopter pilot. So this is a first for me. So if anybody's on edge, it's me, brother. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Um, you know, my family's mostly an Indiana family. Uh, I was there until finished the sixth grade. And then before I started seventh grade, I moved here with my parents to the Kansas City area. And I went through middle school, high school, and even college uh, here in the Kansas City area, University of Kansas grad. And while I was in college, I got interested in flying for the military. Might have had something to do with the Top Gun movie that had come out not too long before, but there was also a few other things involved. And which, by the way, I think the, ton, the, the Top Gun sequel is supposed to be coming out supposed to be out this summer, but I think it's been delayed till next summer. So looking forward to seeing that. But anyways, I went to OCS. I was a PLC guy, platoon leaders class uh, when I was at the University of Kansas, two summers of uh, OCS. And on graduation day from KU, uh, I raised my right hand and be- became a second lieutenant in the Marine Corps. I went in on an air contract. So that meant that as long as I didn't poke an eye out or something like that, I was going to I had a guaranteed chance to to go to flight school. Marine Corps officers have to go to six months of the basic school after they become a second lieutenant, where we learn everything you ever wanted to know about the Marine Corps from a second lieutenant point of view. So six months in Quantico, Virginia, running around the woods of Quantico all winter. And then I found myself in in Pensacola and, and started flight school. Ultimately ended up being a West Coast Cobra attack helicopter pilot. Eight years of active duty. I only did a couple of deployments to Okinawa, South Korea, Japan, uh, lots of train exercises and that kind of thing. But never, uh, never found myself in the combat zone my first eight years of active duty. And I decided I wanted to go pursue a career in the airline. So I was, I was still flying fixed wing on the side in addition to flying helicopters and uh, I got out in 98, and I went right into a reserve squadron uh, in Atlanta. They're at Dobbins Air Reserve Base in Atlanta. And I got hired by a smaller airline, Atlantic Southeast Airlines, flying the mighty EMB-120, the Brasilia. I was there for three years. And eventually, I, I got hired um, I got hired at a major airline, Delta, there in Atlanta. And it wasn't too long after that. And I was doing all this while I was still actively flying in uh, HMLA-773, still flying Cobras for the reserves. So did a number of uh, combined arms exercises at 29 Palms as a reservist. I've done three border patrol missions. That's big, big news these days. I've, I've been down on the Mexican border at three o'clock in the morning with my FLIR, finding illegals coming across the border. I don't know how much you want to talk about that. We can talk about that later, but I've, I've been there, done that. I've, I've captured, you know, not captured, but I've seen, I've reported into the border patrol probably about 40 or 50 illegals in my three tours down there on the border. So I've been there, I've seen it, and uh, I certainly know what's, what those guys, what everybody's dealing with down there on the border. But uh, ultimately, I got hired at Delta Airlines, and like five months later, September 11th happened, I was furloughed. So I was, I was back on the street without a job, and I had a reserve job, but that just wasn't going to you know fulfill things. So um, I started looking at, the, you know, the Marine Corps was, getting ready to mobilize the IRR. They were talking about mobilizing reserve units. Long story short, I ended up back on active duty, uh, temporary stuff for about a year. 
And then I applied to become active reserve. Uh, Army Air Force guys may know that as AGR. Uh, Marine Corps doesn't have a guard, so you, you take the G out, and I was AR. And so I was basically an active duty guy that worked at reserve units. And I was still flying Cobras uh, in squadrons. Ended up doing uh, two seven-month tours flying Cobras in Iraq. Two different squadrons, two different reserve squadrons I went with. Uh, once in 04, and we were there for Fallujah 1. And a lot of stuff was going on um, at that time. And then the second deployment was 07-08. It was like totally quiet. There wasn't hardly anything going on. So I spent 14 months flying Cobras in Iraq. Like I said, most all the activity happened uh, in 2004. In 04, you know, Fallujah one had happened. We we were we were engaged in uh, heavy fighting uh, quite a bit. It was very interesting though. It was very random. Like you know, when you went on, we did 12-hour shifts. So I was like the 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. shift. And of course, we briefed like two hours before. So you know, you're doing 14-hour days. Um, it's hotter than we were there in the summer. It's hotter than you can imagine. In 04, um, you know, our, my aircraft was shot up several times, fired lots of tow and Hellfire missiles, rockets, lots of 20 millimeter. Unfortunately, one, one day I was, uh, we were over Ramadi supporting some Marines on the east side of Ramadi. We got hit by five rounds of 7.62, took out our left engine, and, and one of the bullets uh, went through the back canopy and, and killed my co pilot instantly. So I, f- I flew back. Uh, to the airfield with him in the back seat and uh, landed it safely. But there really was, uh, you know, nothing that could be done um, to save him. So that's, you know, my worst combat experience. Um, there were some, you know, phenomenal days uh, there in Iraq. Most days were very boring and nothing going on. Some days were, you know, we would launch three or four times and be, you know, shooting stuff every time we went out. So, I, you know, I have to admit, as a Cobra pilot, I always wanted to be engaged. I wanted to, I wanted to get to the fight at some point, and you know, eventually that actually happened for me. So, um, and as many as many of you know, uh, you know, one one of the dangers of being in combat is the bad guys shoot back once in a while. So, I've seen it, you know, close at hand, and uh, I, I don't have any regrets about being there and, and doing what we did. But you know, unfortunately. You know, there's a lot of guys that you know paid the price um, for for the U.S. and in our country um, doing the right thing and, and taking the fight to the enemy. So, well, just you know, just real quick, Joe. You know, thank you for that. You, you've given us a lot to think about here. First of all, sorry about your co-pilot. I know, you know, I know that sounds you know years later, but it, I, I really mean that. Uh, I'm glad you made it back safely and. You know, our hearts go out to his family and especially to the guys that he served with. Um, you mentioned a couple of things about the reasons why you, you know, you, that you went into the service and we were just smoking and joking about the uniform. But did you have did you have anybody in your background, your family background that served that you looked up to or maybe came to mind when you decided you wanted to serve the country yourself? No, not really. My dad, after graduating college during the Korean War, he had gone into gone to Navy officer candidate school and. While there, he applied for submarine duty, and they went. He had to go through another physical process, and they discovered that he had issues in his back because when he was a kid, he had polio. Hmm. I found that interesting. I'm like, don't they screen for that before you show up? <laughs> but uh, I guess maybe they, they did would. it differently yeah. back then. But 
so uh-huh. after about six weeks of OCS, he was sent home, you know, and that was, you know, before I was, I had even come along. So I had a, you know, I had an uncle that had been drafted in World War II, um, but never really heard much of w- what he had done. I think I just kind of became, and, and really coming out of high school, I remember one of my best friends enlisted in the army right out of high school. And I just remember thinking, man, what do you, why would you do that? That's crazy. That's ridiculous. But it was really just a lack of awareness. I just didn't know, I didn't understand what being in the military really meant and what it was about. And then I think I got older and I started reading a lot. And I, you know, I just got around some other people that uh, I knew some ROTC guys at college that were involved in and it just i just kind of gradually grew this awareness of what it was all about and then i and then the flying thing is what really triggered me to get interested in it and and that's why i ended up pursuing it well you know you mentioned the um the damage that your that your aircraft took you know and and obviously the battlefield on the ground is much different in the air but it seems but seems to me that there's a lot there might be a hell of a lot more going on flying a helicopter. You know, well, I mean, fast. there is. I mean, um, when you get to that point, flying the machine is just assumed that that the flying part becomes easy. It's just it's assumed you, you've got the flying part down. Then it becomes not not all that unlike being on the ground. It becomes the tactical employment of your weapon system, how you fit into the battlefield. This, your situational awareness of what's going on on the battlefield and what what's that one little piece, what's that one little void that you can fill with your tactical machine or, or your weapon system. And, and you have to know the enemy weapon systems. You have to know all the friendlies that are involved, the friendly weapon systems, and all the capabilities. And you have to, what we look, used to like to say, you have to figure out how to get into the fight. And so oftentimes when we were called, we, 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 stood, we stood a 10-minute strip alert. Most of the time we could run our aircraft, start them up. The Ordnance Marines would come in and arm us up, and we would be off the ground in eight minutes. And we just had a short flight to Ramadi or a short flight to Fallujah because we were right in between at Altakadam, TQ. So we were right in the middle of the Fallujah Triangle for seven months. And most of the time we got called was either to escort convoys along the highways. Um, there was only one time that a convoy came under fire while we were escorting them. And, uh, and we were shooting up some building that you know, the guys in the convoy were shooting up a building. So we just rolled in and shot up the same building. And that one was, that one was pretty easy in broad daylight. The other times we would be called for troops in contact. And oftentimes we would show up and either the fight would be over or the fight never really got started or it started after we had to leave. So, but every once in a while, and um, you never really knew when it was serious and when it wasn't until you finally showed up. And it was always kind of impromptu on-call type stuff. There wasn't ever a whole lot of mission planning and long, you know, drawn-out thought and briefing put into it. It was just, all right, we're ready to go. And then day in and day out, most of the time, nothing would happen. And then every once in a while, it would just things would just go hot. Well you, well, you mentioned, you know, you mentioned no regrets and, you know, a couple of things. What kept you focused and, and did you know what you were fighting for when you were there? Did our, you know, 
Tell us about you that. mean like uh, you mean like the justification of invading Iraq in the first place and all that, or just or? you know not necessarily that, but you said no regrets. You know, did, did you, what kept you focused? What was you know obviously mission, and you have to watch what you're doing. But what what kept your head in the game? Well, to me, it was very simple. Yeah, I'd mentioned I'd been to plenty of combined arms. Ex- we called them combined arms exercises back then. They call them all sorts of different stuff now, but. At 29 Palms in Yuma and El Centro, Okinawa and South Korea. I've done training exercises everywhere. And, you know, how they always say, you're going to fight like you train. And it was so true. Like the the way we worked checking in with the DASC and the way we got the launch call and the way we worked with each other and the way we worked with the Marines and sometimes the Army guys on the ground and sometimes the Air Force and Navy in the air. It was all just like training. I mean, it was there was never any confusion as to how to operate or how to contact people on different frequencies or the procedures that were in place. It was all very clear and plain because we'd done it in training so much. So when we would show up, we really didn't have to make the call as to w- what we were going to do or what we were going to shoot because there was a forward air controller on the ground telling us what to blow up. So it was pretty odd. He's like, these guys, there's bad guys in this building. They're shooting at us. I want you to hit that building. Okay. And so things were very clear. And like everybody else, every day for us was Groundhog Day. You, you know, you'd, you'd go through your routine, in the, or, you know, before the sun came up in the morning when you got up. You'd do your brief. You'd start up the aircraft, get them ready, shut them down, and then you'd sit and wait. And sometimes you'd wait all day and never even launch. And then other times you'd launch four times. And then at the end of the night, you'd go eat something and crawl crawl onto the cot and fall asleep. We, we were sleeping in tents with plywood floors at that point, sleeping on a cot. Did have air conditioning units running until the diesel generators would run out of gas or overheat in the, right in the middle of the day. <laughs> Which usually probably happened like every other day. It always happened like in the heat of the day. I never could figure out why can't they fill up the diesel before it runs dry and that way they never run out you know you guys you guys are being tested big time you know 24 years of service to the united states of america you know thinking about that joe what do you think it was your most memorable experience i would have to say collectively for me it was it was most of that first iraq deployment in 2004 because that was that was my first combat experience that was my first experience being shot at is my first experience putting lead on enemy buildings and vehicles and positions. And so the, the first, your first time is always what you're going to remember. And it was a series of uh, individual skirmishes, maybe w- the max of maybe a full day worth at one point spread out over several months. And so that whole experience for me, truly, you know, validated, you know, me and my personality and, and my ego, if you will, about being a Cobra pilot, because I finally was actually able to serve the Marines that were on the ground that were in need of close air support. And, I, you know, the Cobra is a close air support platform. Marine Corps aviation is all about supporting the riflemen on the ground. And, you know, for, for many years I trained and worked hard and I'm, you know, I'm training to be a pilot and be a, a tactician and know what I'm doing. But in the end, 
it's all about serving that Marine on the ground who is troops in contact. They're in trouble. They need some help and they're calling you. And oftentimes we were the only close air support platform anywhere in range, or we were the only ones in town. And cause we had, you know, this was the post invasion war that we're talking about here. So we had uh, a Cobra Huey squadron and a half in Iraq no tactical fixed wing. And there was one Air Force A-10 and eventually F-16 squadron up at up at Balad. That was the only close air support in Iraq um, post-invasion. Did the, did the enemy have any aircraft at all? No, not, not, not Iraq too, really. I mean, there were a few minor aircraft stuff, but for, for the most part, since the first Iraq war, um, the Iraqi Air Force has pretty much been, you know, grounded. Yeah. What could you tell about the enemy? You know, being a Cobra attack pilot, what did you, what did you see or, or about the enemy in Iraq? What what was their strengths and what was their weaknesses? Shortly after we got there, Fallujah became a city under siege, and they pretty much hold up in all these concrete buildings inside Fallujah. Every once in a while, they'd come out to the to the to the edge of town and start a fight. And you know, oftentimes, they were trying to draw aircraft in to try to get an aircraft shoot down, because that was a big political move for them was to get an aircraft shoot down. Right. So I did not. My entire fourteen months in Iraq, I went outside the front gate on the ground once. So the so in the fourteen months that you were there, you talked about you didn't really go outside the gate, but once. What was that? What, I mean, was it because just you, you didn't like the surroundings, or what was the deal with that, Joe? First of all, we weren't we weren't allowed to go outside the front gate. I mean, you know, our mission was, you know, for the most part, we were on the flight schedule every day or every night. We, you never had a break. About every seven days, they tried to take you up the flight schedule just for one day all right so you could you know get your wits about you i didn't really see the enemy up front there were a few times you know we saw this guy i saw a guy shoot an rpg at us and we were low enough to uh to to witness that well cobra helicopter too you know i can remember seeing those you know you mentioned 29 palms but we used to see him you know at ntc the cobras and it was always like this thing was an unbelievable machine uh, fast and sleek and could turn on a dime. And, you know, I always wondered, you know, being on the ground when we were in a track or something, what it was like being up there in a helicopter that was so sleek and lethal. Um, it was definitely a sexy machine. It, it made a lot of noise. It sounded sexy. It looked sexy. It was just, it was a great vehicle to the fight, you know, but, you know, in the end, it doesn't matter, you know, what your vehicle is. The, the, the important thing is, you know, as long as that vehicle gets you to the fight, that's all that really matters. Because in the end, all you're trying to do is get in on the fight. So I was very fortunate to have been a Cobra pilot and actually have made it to the fight a few times. So I really appreciate that. We typically stayed really, really low. Um, we were trying to stay out of the uh, surface to surface to air missile threat. But you have to pick your poison. So when you stayed out of the surface air missile threat by staying below a couple hundred feet, you also put yourself more in range of small arms. And we decided that, uh, 
the surface-to-air missile threat was more of a threat than the small arm threat. So, you know, oftentimes we would come back with bullet holes in the aircraft. And like I mentioned that one time, they did get lucky and, and, and hit us pretty good. So most of our intel on the enemy would come in the form of intel briefs or the grunts that were on, were on the bases with us who were out there in the towns and villages. We would get intel and feedback and, and information from them. You know, at that time, there was a lot of people pouring in from other countries. Uh, there were there were people pouring in from Jordan, Syria, even Chechenians, uh, Iranian mujahideen. Uh, were all moving in. There was there was just a flood of people from outside Iraq that were all flooding in there, and those were really the ones that were causing most of the problem. You know, in early early '07 late 06, early 07, when, when the awakening happened, when they, they got all the religious leaders in Iraq to, you know, to basically kick out all the, the foreign insurgents, almost overnight everything went quiet. <clears throat> so really the, the local Iraqis, you know, it started with them, but it really got fueled and, and went on way longer than it would have um, if it hadn't been for all of the, these the foreign support that started pouring in. So um, a lot of times, you know, we were, we were dealing with <clears throat> dealing directly with not, not Iraqi insurgents. It was oftentimes, you know, Syrians, Jordanians, even some Mujahideen from Iran, Chechnyans. I mean, they're coming from everywhere. So, uh, yeah. How was your second deployment different from the first? <clears throat> different squadron, different, different group of guys. And it was totally quiet. I don't think we. I don't think we. I don't think we fired one round in anger the entire seven months on the second deployment, and that was late '07 through the year to spring of '08. So everything went quiet after the awakening, and <clears throat> it wasn't long after that that they started working on you know withdrawal plans. It had to do completely with uh, Petraeus's plan and how they implemented it, and they they pretty much went out to the religious leaders and like okay, look, what do we got to do to make everything quiet down? And they said, well, it's not, it's not really us that's fighting you guys. It's all these other people that are fighting you. And I'm like, okay, well, I tell you what, we'll leave if you figure out how to kick them out and the fighting stops. And that, I mean, that's a really simplistic view of how it happened, but that's more or less what it was. So, you know, that's what happened. And then, and so the awakening had happened, and so we stayed around for another year or two after that and you know not a whole lot was going on i mean there was a random roadside bomb and a stray 122 millimeter rocket once in a while but there was no direct very little if any direct contact with with the enemy at that point interesting so so you transitioned out out of the marine corps when did you retire i retired in october of 2013 october 2013 so my, yeah my last three years after i left uh I left my last squadron in 2010. Um, unfortunately, in 2010, you know, my first wife, she died suddenly of a strep A infection in her leg. So I found myself the single father of a 9 and 10-year-old boy, and I was no longer deployable. Um, so I had three years left to retire at that point, and the Marine Corps, um, goodness of their heart, they sent me up to Fort Leavenworth, uh, I was one of the Marines, the deputy director for the Marine Corps element 
at the Army's Command General Staff College. So I spent the last three years uh, at the Army's Command General Staff College um, and then retired from there, which is just up the road from Kansas City. So that's why we're still here. You know, sorry about the loss of your wife. Um, again, you know, years later, I, I mean that. And certainly that didn't help with your transition. But can you talk a little bit about the transition and, and you know, what that was like, Joe? And, and, and did you get the support? You know, you said you got the support, but did, did you get everything you needed to, to transition into the civilian sector? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, you know, it, it, the when when Katie died, I mean, it was an incredibly mm. traumatic event for everybody involved. I mean, not just me, but my kids and both families and friends and everything else. And it was just, um, you know, us military guys, we don't like to be hugely emotional, but <laughs> yeah, it kind of sucked the life out of me there for a while. But uh, um. The, the Marine Corps really helped me out as as a in my family by allowing me to uh, go to CGSC. That that last three years is exactly what I needed, um, and it was a huge benefit to my kids. And uh, I'm I'm remarried now um, to lovely wife Kelly, who also has a boy and girl. So you know, I'd like to say I've recovered from that, or I'm on the other side of it at least. Uh, of course, my kids are still. Yeah. Um, affected by it and always will be you know you can't lose your a parent as a, as a as a young child and not have that impact you for the rest of your life so as far as i'm con- you know as far as me personally i was looking for that transition i knew it was coming uh, a few years in advance i knew i was going to go i knew i was probably going to go back to the airlines like if my airline survived the recession and bankruptcy i was going to go back to my airline so I kind of had an advantage there where I didn't really need to go look for a job. But I was wanting to make a transition to entrepreneurship. I, I'd been – my entire time I was in the military, it wasn't – I was kind of an inventor, loved to come up with ideas as a kid. As I got older, especially after I was in the Marine Corps, I started becoming fascinated with entrepreneurship. You know, the idea of taking a product or service to market and making money – as a business somehow. And so I tried a lot of things when I was in the military. I had some moderate to mild success here and there, but oftentimes I'd start to get some momentum or get onto an idea. And then all of a sudden a, a, a deployment or a training exercise or something would come up. Um, and, and I'd lose the momentum and, um, have a hard time, you know, getting it back or recovering. So it was really tough to do. Um, a lot of the online stuff and internet stuff was still really young, during those days, um, only in the last few years, my last few years in the military was, you know, the, the concept of online businesses. And I became fascinated with podcasting. I, I used to listen to CDs and stuff uh, driving to and from work whenever I was in the car. And then podcasting came along and I was like, holy cow. And I used to have to download them off my computer onto my device, my iPod. And then I could listen to them in the car on the way, on the way to and from work. And of course, now you just stream everything, you know. Well, you, and so I, I became an avid podcast listener. Well, I you were on the cutting the edge of it too with your own show. I mean, you, you know, yeah. you start out listening, but then you went to Veteran on the Move podcast, and you became part of it. There's your. I think the I, yeah. I think podcast technic podcast technically were invented like around oh four oh five, and it you know really didn't start catching on. 
I mean, most people weren't listening to podcasts until 06, 06, 07, you know, 08. People started listening to them, and it was still only 10, 15% of most people had ever even heard of a podcast up until, you know, like around, you know, the last two, three years. Right. So I started my podcast in, I started working on it in 2013, and 2014, summer of 2014 was the launch. And I've, I've launched, I've launched an episode every Monday. Uh, since then, so I've never missed I've never missed a, an episode every week um, for about five years now, and I was fascinated with podcasts because you can listen to a, an incredibly small niched, uh, like a a tribe or yeah, first I started listening to like real estate investing podcasts and business podcasting and you know, a lot of random stuff, some, some politics here and there, but I found it interesting that, I mean, there's some really weird podcasts out there and they've got, they've got <laughs> a follow, you know, they've got a follow. Like I know, you can find I, a podcast on just about any kind of weird thing you might be interested in. You know, like there's people that have game of Thrones podcasts. All they sit, all they do is sit around and talk about game of Thrones, you know, you know, what's, you know what's even more crazy is that, the average podcast show lasts only seven episodes. People get them started, they get them going, and then they finally realize that it's a job or a part-time job. And, and <laughs> unless your mind is really in it, they just fade away. Somebody told me, Joe, the other day there's 600,000 different podcasts now at any given time. I think that's right, yeah. You know, but, but you know, so that says something about your show, Staying Power, and to be – religious like that every week on monday are you kidding me you're definitely within the top three percent which is really kind of cool when you think about it yeah maybe and, not in listenership but longevity for sure <laughs> well you know it builds man you know it builds um you know so you know you dealt with the loss of a co-pilot and you come back you deal with the loss of your wife uh you get remarried you're you're tracking again you've started your podcast you're flying, you know, jet airliners again. Great responsibility with people on board. You now, you're a dad of, you know, a, a merged family, and you know that's a lot. And it's great admiration from this side for sure. You know, what do you, what do you want the civilian world to know about transitioning veterans and especially combat veterans? Because you know, we read so much about what civilians think. Every time something happens and the guy or the person's an, uh, 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 a veteran and the first thing, you know, you know, post-traumatic stress, traumatic brain injury, loose cannon, hair trigger. What do you want the people really to know about veterans? Yeah, we, we discuss, you know, even the Veteran on the Move podcast, you know, I, I aim to empower veterans through entrepreneurship. Since I'm, I'm a huge fan and very passionate about entrepreneurship myself, I wanted to start a podcast to help encourage and introduce all the people, programs, and resources to veterans to help them have a successful transition to entrepreneurship. That was the whole idea behind when I started the podcast right, right as I was retiring from the Marine Corps. And what I've learned in interviewing, like I said, I think I've conducted 277 interviews now. Awesome. We talk about transition all the time, not just in the context of transition entrepreneurship, but transition to anything, you know, out of the military. And I've learned that 
a couple of points. There are what's known as hard skills and there's what's known as soft skills. And hard skills are things like, I have my MBA. I have my bachelor's degree. I'm a CPA. I'm a Six Sigma, you know, black belt, third degree or whatever. Any kind of thing you can have a certification or something attached to. I'm, you know, I'm an EMT or I'm a nurse or anything that has a licensing requirement, something you can put a label on it. Those kinds of things are considered hard skills. And hard skills are very important in the civilian sector because sometimes you, you know, you can't go sell real estate unless you're a certified real estate agent. And you, know, you can't do certain jobs unless you have those certifications. So sometimes the civilian sector, the civilian sector focuses heavily on hard skills. You know, what was your yeah. GPA and those kinds of things. But the, the true great employees are the ones that have phenomenal soft skills. And the civilian sector doesn't focus on soft skills very much. Because it's it's hard it's hard to qualify it's hard to put your finger on it, like when you talk to one of your military buddies, like hey, what's this guy about? Oh, he's a good dude. He's good to go, man. That means all his soft skills are really good. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> it's a, it's a it, language, isn't it? Yeah, it's like yeah, it's like you know your 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 reputation precedes you, and in the military, it's like okay, who who do I want? You know, who am I picking for my football team here? What what about that guy? Right. You, it's it's all about these soft skills in the end are what makes great employees. I mean, it's kind of like when I said earlier, like the flying of the aircraft was just assumed that that wasn't even thought of anymore. Now it was the tactical employment of the weapon system that became important. And your hard skills, when you get into certain civilian jobs, your hard skills are assumed. Now it's the tactical employment of those hard skills that becomes important. And that's where military guys shine. They might be lacking some of these hard skills or some of these certifications or whatever, but their soft skills are phenomenal because they've packed. I'd like to, there's, I'd say there's about a four or five to one ratio, like five years in the military is equal to like 20 years in the civilian sector as far as the amount of life and, and interpersonal leadership, hard, Teamwork, you know, hardship, teamwork, mode, you know, staying motivated when you're cold, wet, tired, hungry. You pack so much living into a short amount of time when you're in the military that y your your soft skills are so far accelerated beyond what most people would get in the civilian sector. And don't get me wrong, there's there's some phenomenal capabilities out there with with civilians and and some things going on in the civilian sector, but. Put it this way, the military can spend and does spend more time and money developing leaders than just about anything else. Yeah, they might teach us to fly. They might teach us about weapon systems. They might teach us to shoot. They might get us in good physical condition. But they, they're spending more time teaching us how to lead and follow than anything else. And the civilian world doesn't have time to train people to do that. They need people to jump in and go start making money right now. You know, you know, you just, I'll tell you, you just made me think of something. I've never, I've, maybe I've thought about this, but you just, you know, the five years, the 20 years, you know, this is probably what you're saying is correct. And to think, think about a young NCO or somebody that's been boots on the ground in a combat environment and been through right. the things that you've mentioned. 
when you get back and when I compare the things that I've been confronted with in the civilian world, now I'm not a combat veteran, but comparing the two and being able to speak the language, I can't imagine any veteran that has tasted combat or been in it to not be able to handle anything that the civilian world throws at it. I don't know. Is that, is that being arrogant or is that a reality? No. And you know, of course, there's still a lot of individuals and, and the guys in the military and you know, guys and gals in the military are, are nothing but a subset of the civilian sector. But the training and the experience, the, the life experiences they've had, I mean, dealing with people and learning how to get along with everybody, and even, when, even when you don't like people and, and, and mission, the mentality of mission accomplishment – that's fostered so well in us while we're in the military. And, you know, frankly, a lot of times civilians just don't get that. They, they don't, they don't get that exposure and they don't get that training. More of a dog eat dog world, so to speak. I, I've heard guys talk about how, you know, in the military, you can usually trust the guy to the left of you and the guy to the right of you. You know, they got, they, and, you know, the guy behind you's got your back. Right. But, in the civilian sector, it's it is like a it's it's like a dog eat dog world. There's there's a, there's a lack of of morals and integrity out there. It's all about making more money than the other guy, and I'll crawl over the top of you to get there. Yeah, and and it's not it's not that you know, civilians are bad people or anything. It's just they you know how many how many more moral and morality and ethical lessons did you have when you're in the military? I mean, you see it all the time, and. And the military actually talks about it and preaches it. And, Some, yeah, I mean something and as studies simple, it exactly something as simple as being on time for a to set up an ambush. <laughs> exactly. You know, what I mean, if you're not on time, people can be hurt. Or you yeah, know what be I'm late saying? for an ambush and see how that works. You see out how for that you. works out for you. exactly. <laughs> you know, and it's kind of like yeah, and we you know anyhow, I I I'm tracking with you, sir. You know, so that you said something about. This is all tying into this, you know, the Veteran on the Move podcast, and you talked about empowerment and, you know, the underlying mission to what you were trying to accomplish with your own show. And that's awesome, man. You know, speak to us about empowerment and, and, and how these veterans that you that you have on your show t- talk about that, Joe, about this, uh, you know, how do you empower them and, and what does that mean? Yeah, you know, I think one of the biggest threats, you know, we, we know about 22 veterans a day committing suicide, and we know what's going on with the VA and, and, and the uh, painkiller addiction issues and all that stuff. It's all, pro- it's all valid. It's all problems. It's all happening. But I'm, I'm no psychiatrist, but, you know, in my opinion, most of these problems come about and occur, and they can all go back to one single thing, and it's the loss, the loss of purpose. When we're in the military, we, we have a very good sense of purpose. If nothing else, our purpose is to get up early in the morning and, and show up to work you know, or show up to the ambush on time. Whatever, whatever it is you're doing in the military, it's pretty obvious when and where you're supposed to be somewhere and what's going to happen if you're not. So even that basic sense of purpose, and you've always, no matter, you know, every time you PCS, even though you might leave the current unit you're in, you go to another unit, at least when you get there, you've got a unit of like-minded people that you plug right in with and you continue on. When in the civilian world, when you move or get out and go into the civilian world, you're going to show up and you're not going to know anybody and everybody around you, no one, none of them are in the military anymore. 
And you, it's really easy to lose your sense of purpose. And the way, you know, you've, first of all, you got to be aware that that can happen. And, you know, a lot of military guys, they get out and maybe they go to school because they don't, you know, they got the GI Bill and it's such a good deal. They just need to go to school for that. Or um, maybe, you know, they get some job and they, and they just, you know, they start sleeping in and they're drinking too much and they gain weight. And next thing you know, they're just a sloth and they've totally lost everything they ever learned in the military because they've, they were given that freedom to just do what they want. And so oftentimes, you know, the simple suggestion I would make is you got to get, you got to get involved or you got to hold yourself accountable by, by plugging yourself into either other veteran organizations or plugging you into, you know, um, even, even if it's as simple as joining a gym and signing up for classes and always being there when you're, it's time to work out, that kind of stuff. So it's just really easy to lose your sense of purpose. And if you're aware of that, you know, and you find that that might be happening to you, you got to figure out a way to do something about it because you got to fix that first and foremost. But, um, you know, going back to what I was saying about those hard skills, soft skills, the things, those soft skills that make, is the reason veterans make great employees. And all of those soft skills that make veterans great employees are also the same skills that make veterans great entrepreneurs. And a lot, you know, a lot of guys, when they get out, they need to just go get a job. They need, they need to land somewhere and be able to pay their bills, <clears throat> get oriented, get their wits about them, and then they can start looking left and right if they want to transition to a different type of job or maybe start looking towards entrepreneurship. Now, if you're still in the military and you've been in the military for a while, and you really think when you get out, you want to start your own business or you want to run your own show. If you're still in the military, the best time to start working on it is now. Don't wait till you get out. Ideally, the, the ideal entrepreneurial veteran transition consists of you start up your business while you're still in the military. You got it going. You're actually making money and you get it to the point where the only thing keeping you from scaling is the fact that you're still in the military. And then the day you get out, you've got the freedom and the time to start scaling it up from there. That is the ideal veteran entrepreneurial transition. Now, most of us don't pull that off, but I know guys that have done it. And they worked on it for several years while they were still in the military. And it was a phenomenal transition. As soon as, soon as they left the military, they just skyrocketed because they were ready to go. Um, it's definitely some great advice. It's the first time I've, I've heard it, you know, being prepared before you even get out and great advice. So, you know, and you actually answered the second question, uh, you know, if there was a, a young man or a woman or people that are getting ready to transition, you know, what advice would you give to them? And you've given them some great advice. So that's awesome. Yeah. You know, and, and if you don't have a business idea or if you don't, if you don't know what, that's kind of how I was. I'm like, I really want to be an entrepreneur, but I didn't exactly know what the idea or the product or the service was going to be. So that's why, that's why my last two years, I'm like, you know what, let me just go get a master's in entrepreneurship and I can learn some things, pick up some of those hard skills. And as an idea comes along, then I can, then I'll be more prepared and ready to pounce on it. So that's really kind of where the podcast idea came along. 
And, and since then, uh, you know, we've been Amazon sellers. Um, if you, if you don't really have an idea for a business, I, I would recommend starting with Amazon. Um, that's a business that anybody can start doing research and getting, and getting in on. There's a number of different ways of going about it. Uh, go through all the details, but I, I always would recommend Amazon as an Amazon seller to anybody that's in the military, even if you're overseas, because if you're overseas, they've got Amazon there. And actually, you're an advantage. If you're in Europe, you can start your Amazon business in Europe. And then when you come back to the U.S., now you've got one in Europe, you can start it here. So um, Amazon always comes to mind. When anybody asks me, like, well, I'm in the military. What kind of business should I start? I would say Amazon, you know, Amazon online uh, product selling, that kind of thing. And, and it can always still be a side business if you decide to get out and get a job. You know, you need income or something initially until you get it going. That's for great advice. You know, so let me ask you this. Where do you see yourself in five years, Joe? <laughs> so, funny you should ask. So, anyways, <laughs> um, I've been looking a lot at masterminds lately. I've always known about masterminds. You know, Napoleon Hill talks about the secret of the mastermind in his book. I'm, I'm a member of a mastermind. I have been for a while now. And I don't know why I've been holding back on this, but I've really wanted to start a mastermind for military folks, veterans, uh, you know, whether you're still in or you're transitioning out or you've already gotten out. Um, I've really been wanting to start a mastermind. I've been holding back for a long time on doing so. So I'm actually getting ready to start doing that. So, so my five-year plan would be um, having – probably 150 veterans involved in a serious veteran business entrepreneurial oriented transition type uh, mastermind group. So um, actually you're the first, you're the first guy I've actually talked to about it publicly was starting up this mastermind group. Um, so um, I did want to put it out to your audience if that's okay. Absolutely. If, you know, I mean, if, I might be yeah. number one. I don't know. <laughs> I just, I'm just, <laughs> just thinking right. about that. So maybe I need to be in a five-year plan too, um, you know. Have you ever been in a mastermind, John? I, I have not. I, I, okay. I, I've heard a little bit about him, and like you, I've read yeah. I've read about them, and I, I, I don't know a whole lot. I've been invited to a couple, of, but I've just never pulled the trigger. Yeah, so, so I'm, looking, I'm looking for 10 people. I'm looking for 10 veterans. Now, if you're still in the military, that's even better. I'm, I'd love to have some guys who are still in. But I'm going to I'm looking for 10 people to to be a plank holder in the first mastermind group. And you know, so if you're interested, you know, let me know. I'm I'm going to take 10. I'm going to cut it off, and then us 10 guys, we're going to and gals, we're going to make this veteran entrepreneurial business mastermind happen. And so the first 10 are going to set the tone and put together the ideas and concepts and, and develop the need for what the follow on groups are going to, are going to need and going to want. And then we're going to tweak it and make it better and make it awesome. And then, then we can start opening it up to others. That would be really cool. So that's cool. what I want to do. So five years from now, I'd love to have to be, a be running a very robust group of, of mastermind uh, groups for veterans and military and business and entrepreneurs. I like that idea. You know, I, I just, and again, I, I've read about them, don't know a lot about them. And, and you're right. You know, Napoleon Hill and several others have talked about him and the power of that 
universal consciousness and 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 you know helping with with common purpose and but with various diverse people in it that's pretty cool um yeah you know it's very it's very powerful um i, I tell you you know being in my mastermind you know, to have a group of 10 people my mastermind's all men and and it's that way intentionally the mastermind i would start you know we would allow women also um, but it's going to be veteran focused so it's very powerful to have 10 guys that have your best interest in mind 10 guys that have the same mindset as you but it's 10 guys from all different walks of life so they've all got a different perspective on things and you know sometimes if you're struggling through something um whether it's you know business or or family or faith or some kind of personal issue whatever it may be these are all business oriented people but you can't run a successful business if you're not standing on a solid foundation so a lot of our mastermind time is spent building that concrete and that stone foundation underneath you and then we talk about business also and to have 10 people that you can confide in and you listen to their problems you listen to their successes it's really it's it's incredibly powerful um there's really nothing else like it i mean you can have good friends you can ask advice for or whatever but a lot of times friends and family they're not you know they're not in the same mindset that you may be whereas if you're in a focused mastermind group everybody has very similar interests and a lot of different backgrounds and it's it's just really powerful to and we meet once a week and so I know never be without my mastermind guys because it's it's just incredible and you know we check in with each other throughout the week email text call hey man what's going on with that problem you're having did you hear any word back I mean it's it's just it's just very interesting it's it's uh it's unlike anything else I mean some of us may have had that mom or that dad that you know was our basic mastermind but the fact is you know most of us don't have that so. The mastermind is the way you can get it. I like that. You know, I'd be interested in, in talking to you more about that offline. But, you know, let me ask let me ask you this, Joe. And then and then I want to hear how people can find out. I want to let people know how they can find out about your veteran on the move and then how they can contact you directly. But, you know, what what does freedom mean to you? For me, I think most people I was trying to explain this to my freshman in college daughter you know freedom is not the ability to go out and do necessarily whatever you want and cause hate hate and discontent all around town freedom means the government stays out of your business you know most of our laws and rules are set up from previous kingdoms and and ancient ways of ruling people and our we're we're set up so that people can exist without an intrusive government. And that's what the true essence of freedom that our founding fathers were talking about. Mm. So most Americans take that concept for granted because they've grown up with it. Then there's another very important freedom for me, and that's financial freedom. And financial freedom for me means you don't have to get up every day and work for money. You've got enough investments. You've got enough assets and your your house is paid off or whatever whatever that means to you it means you know and that means whether you're living in a castle and you don't have to get up and work for money 
or you're living in a small, modest house and you don't have to get up and work for money. Whatever works for you, you don't have to get up and work for money. Very powerful. Think about that. If you didn't have to get up and work for money every day, I still do. I mean, I, I'm still getting up working for money. But some point, now maybe it doesn't come to you officially retire, but at some point you want to get to where you don't have to wake up and work for money. Doesn't mean you're going to lay in bed all day. It just means your focus of main effort is not figuring out how to pay, get your bills paid. And you know, most of us, our adult lives, Every day we're thinking, I got I to gotta get to work. I got to work because I got bills to pay. So imagine the sense of freedom you can have if you don't have to wake up and worry about working in order to pay those bills. You know, I, I absolutely love that definition of freedom. Uh, and in fact, I think you've, you're the first guest on our show. And of course, this is we're not as many as you have, but it's the, you're the first uh, interviewee that's talked about financial freedom. And uh, it's definitely something to consider. Do you have a Do you have a personal quote that you like, or do you have your own quote about life in general? I got a really good one. I wasn't prepared for some, but I do remember it. Fortunately, so make good use of the scraps of time. And that was a quote back from like the early 1900s. It's actually a, a well-known reporter at the time who'd spent a lot of time with great leaders of, of our country, military leaders and political leaders. And he had gone around and followed, he'd followed some of the civil war leaders, um, post civil war. He'd, he'd known them and he'd done a lot of interviews and he, he was a journalist, but he was given a speech at, uh, the Navy war college in the early, like the twenties or thirties. And his name escapes me at the moment, but the important part is the quote, one thing he noticed about very successful people was they always made good use of the scraps of time. They always had a pen and paper with them. They always had a book. Anytime there was downtime, they didn't just stare at the wall or waste that time. They always were ready to jump in and start working on something anytime they got a five or ten minute break. Awesome. You know, definitely a quote that has withstood the, you know, time and you know, I, I, these idioms that, that, you know, that we grew up with, you know, sometimes you didn't pay attention to them when you were younger. But you mentioned, you <laughs> yeah. know, a, as we grow older, man, do they make a hell of a lot more sense now than they did just 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And, <laughs> you know, you start thinking about these things when you do get up there. But, you know, how can people find out about your show, Joe? And anyhow, I just want to before we close here, I just. You know, we're, we're, we're in a discussion, conversation with retired Marine Lieutenant Colonel Joe Crane. He was a Super Cobra attack helicopter pilot, served his country valiantly, came back in one piece. And he has his own podcast show. He's going to tell us about that. And, 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 and he, he's out on a serious mission to help people through that podcast show. And, you know, he's flying airliners now, but he's got a dream and a goal to create this mastermind group and I know he's going to do it and who knows, I might be, I might be picking a number, but tell us about the, uh, the podcast, Joe, and how can people contact you if they, if they need advice or they want more information. All right. You bet, John. Thanks. Uh, the veteran on the move podcast is just like it's, it sounds, 
Uh, if you, you can go to veteran on veteran on the move.com singular veteran on the move.com. Uh, the podcast is also on iTunes, uh, Google play stitcher pipe throwing it out on YouTube also. So you can, you can find that anywhere. You can also find it on the actual veteran on the move.com website. Um, love to have you take a listen and, uh, if you, you know, if you want to drop me a note, there is a contact form on the website if you want to send me something. Um, or if you want to email me directly, um, especially, remember, I'm looking for, I'm only looking for 10 people to start this mastermind. I'm not going to take any more at the moment because I want to get 10 people and then I want to refine it and make it really good. And then in the near future, we'll open it back up and hopefully establish some more groups. But if if you're interested in being involved in a, veteran focused mastermind that that encompasses military experiences transition business and entrepreneurship uh you can send me an email directly and my email is joe j-o-e at veteran on the move.com everybody's got that joe at veteran on the move.com that's right j-o-e at veteran on the move.com is there anything else, Joe, that you'd like to, to say uh, to the listeners out there? Um, any little bit of advice? You know, you've given great wisdom here, but a- anything else you'd like to say before we, you know, go on to something else? But uh, I all I can say is this, is I appreciate you and, and who you are and what you stand for. And knowing that guys like you were in the cockpits of those Cobras, uh, there's a lot of people that slept a lot easier because of guys like you and, and your comrades, uh, the people that you served with. It means a lot uh, to me personally and, and to thousands and actually millions of other Americans who enjoy the luxuries we have here in America without this intrusive government because guys Absolutely. like you are willing to, to serve the country in the capacity that you did. So thank you for that. Um, Looking forward to the building the stronger relationship with you. But but anything else you'd like to add, Joe, to your interview today? Yeah, thanks, John. I really appreciate it, and you know, thanks for what for what you're doing here um, with your podcast and Green Zone Hero. You know, phenomenal things you got going on there. So good on you for that. Keep it up. Keep up the good work. Uh, last thing, my last bit of advice would be, especially in the context of whether it be transitioning out of the military or starting your own business or getting involved in entrepreneurship is don't go at it alone. There's so many programs and resources and people out there just dying to help veterans do things and be successful. All you got to do is go find them and reach out. Matter of fact, I failed to mention if the same email, if you want to send me an email, I've got a list of 38 great uh, veteran entrepreneurship programs that are all set up to help veterans get involved in entrepreneurship. It's, it's, it's a list of 36 of them. And I've put them together over the years, you know, talking with people that have been through all these different programs. A lot of them are run by universities. A lot of them are nonprofits. Most of them are free to go to. They'll even fly you there and feed you while you're there and house you and run you through these incubators and everything else. So if you're interested in that, again, just send me an email to the same email, joe.com, and I'll send that to you for free. If, you know, if like, if you don't know where to start or what program to pick, you know, there's so many to pick from. So don't go at it alone. You don't have to. Don't go at it alone through your transition out of the military. If you just want to go uh, start a career in business or get a job, 
certainly don't go out alone if you're trying to get in entrepreneurship and start a business. Work that network. Use the resources that are available to you. Get help. Bring people in on it. The worst thing to do is try to figure it out on your own. Well, thank you for that, sir. There you have another tip and a bit of advice from retired Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel Joe Crane, combat veteran, helicopter pilot, Cobras. Uh, thank you for spending a scrap of time here with us today, Joe, on Straight Out of Combat. I can't say enough about you as a person and the things that you're doing, and I'm looking forward to the future doing some things with you. Thank you, sir. All right, John. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's been great. Yes, sir. Thank you. Before they burn it down. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine from Green Zone Hero. If you liked what you heard, then tell others about us. Like us and download us. And please remember, freedom is not free, and combat veterans are vital assets. They're not broken. Yeah.